Welcome back to the Good Treason Podcast for part two of our eighth episode, First Night, First Kill. Without further ado, back into the conversation. I just wanted I just wanted that guy to be gone, right? So now there's silence. My my magazine is empty. I have no more bullets. Um, I I'm I'm, tr- I'm starting to recharge because I have packs of bullets. Um, I try to recharge my magazines to refill my magazines and stuff. But and there are cars cars passing by, but there's no shots fired anymore. Mm-hmm. So. Everybody starts to cheer like, ah, oh, Robin, you did it. You killed the motherfucker. <laughs> you killed him. Nice. And everybody starts to be happy. And all of a sudden, um, my commander shows up and says, Robin, it's time to go. And everybody t- tells him like, yeah, Robin just killed the other sniper. And he's like, thank you. Thank you for defending Kurdistan. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's weird, but all right. <laughs> but I felt pretty proud. I felt pretty proud. And yeah. the next day they told me, yes, he really killed the motherfucker. We found him when we were advancing. We found the corpse, and you really killed him. And no, no um, way. Yeah. So it wasn't the kind of thing where you shot nine rounds, and then the guy just bugged out because he knew he'd been found out. They actually no. They actually confirmed my kill. This was your first night on the front line. Yes, it was my first night. First night, first kill. Um, wow. Yeah, I was I was proud of myself, and it's funny because yeah. I thought it would be really hard um to kill somebody and i think part of it that i that i took it so lightly was because i didn't see it yeah i didn't see it and i had a lot of i had a lot of anger because this guy had killed like i think five guys at that night in one night and yeah jeez and so i was pretty proud of myself that i took this motherfucker out and yeah. So was so was the rest of the people, and he, my commander told his commander, and uh, yeah, he came up to me, shake, shook my hand, uh, gave me a hug, said something in Kurdish like yeah, "thanks for thanks for doing that," something like this, and he was really proud. He was he he was becoming like kind of a father figure throughout this whole this whole war, and I started to tell him about my problems with the rifle. And that I don't have night vision, I have no thermal scope. And he said to me, well, just come with me for the next operations, for the next nights, you come with me. I have a rifle, I have a, I have a thermal scope on my rifle, uh, you just use my M16. And I'm like, mm. I'm like, dope. Was this, this is your commander's commander or this, do you, you remember yes, the guy's name? that's the, yeah, Brusque. Brusque. Th- that guy's name was Brusque and he was, he was amazing. Mm-hmm. He was the most amazing Kurd I have ever met. He was extremely welcoming. We became really good friends over time. Um, he invited me to his family's house in Kobani. Yeah, he, he was a really good guy. He was the frontline commander for the for this part of the frontline. He was the frontline commander. So his job was basically sitting around the whole night, coordinating stuff uh, with his tablet, um, coordinating troops, coordinating movements and in the first night when I went with him um, that was the first night when I had the M16 with a thermoscope 
and just a lot of material because I found a GoPro on one of the dead, dead ISIS fighters and obviously I kept it. <laughs> mm. So now I had a camera. Were there any videos I, on the GoPro from the ISIS fighter? Yeah, they were. But I gave them to US Special Forces because that's, that's, that's the better thing to do. And I yeah. didn't have a laptop, so I couldn't, I couldn't secure the videos. Yeah. But it was quite, was quite amazing, actually. And they were quite happy. And so, yeah, um, now I had an M16, at least for the night. Mm -hmm. And I always, took, I always took my Dragunov rifle with me as well, because it's a little more accurate in the distance. Mm -hmm. But I almost never used it, except when it became daylight, right? The Dragunov. Um, yes, Dragunov. Otherwise, I would use the M16 with a thermoscope on top of mm -hmm. it. And yeah, so now I had this, I had this amazing rifle at least in the night, and he just told me like, okay, there's ISIS all around these buildings, so whatever you see, you fire. And I'm, and I'm like, dope, cool, but I still had, to, I, I, I still had to report back, right? I yeah. still had to ask sometimes. Okay, there are troops, troop movements. They're advancing. Um, where do we go? Uh, where can I shoot? Is this enemy? The guy that I see on this balcony, is it enemy or not? And there was a there was a situation one night when I saw, and this is on camera. Uh, this is on this is on. Uh, I, th I don't think they put it in the RT documentary, but they they have it on camera, and it's where I see their troops troop movements of us troops advancing, mm -hmm. and I see a guy or several guys with machine guns on a balcony where our troops are going to be at in a couple of minutes. And I tell, like, hey, I see someone, I see people with machine guns on, on the balcony. Mm. And, 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 and people didn't pay attention to it. There was always this little boy. I think he was maybe 16. He was the, uh, the assistant of the commander. Mm. I don't remember his name. And I, I tell him, like, there's enemy. Dijmin. Dijmin means enemy. And mm -hmm. it's over there. On, on the fucking balcony. And they say like, no, no, no. How do you say machine gun? Uh, Bixi. Bixi is machine gun in, in Kurdish. Mm. And so I tell them there's ISIS there with machine guns. And they say like, no, that's all good. I don't, I don't see it. They say, show me. But they went inside. Nobody was believing me. And so our troops started to advance. And all of a sudden these guys come out with machine guns and fire and kill the whole group. What? Were they in range for you to, to shoot at them? No, that's the problem. Mm. They, were not in they were not in range. I mean, I, sh I tried to shoot at them, but when it happened, I was not on the wall to actually... And, and the problem is, also, they went once... They, one, I think they didn't stay on the balcony. I think they went one, uh, one floor down mm -hmm. where it was, there was a building in between us. So I couldn't see them. I didn't have a line of fire, so I couldn't, I couldn't see them. I just, you just hear through the radio, the screaming and, and the reporting back like, oh, there's enemy fire, machine guns, blah, 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 blah. Oh, and, and in the end I say, hey, I knew that before. Do you trust me now? Because you should. And yeah, the commander was like, why didn't you tell me before? And I said, I did. I did tell your, your, your assistant and he was trying to look at through my scope and didn't believe me because he didn't find it or whatever, or the guys went inside and yeah, this could have been avoided. Whoa. And I felt pretty, sh I felt pretty shitty not to insist on it. I got pretty mad at times with, with these guys, with, with, with the running boys, basically with the assistance of the commander. I got pretty, pretty, um, 
stressed out with them over time because they always wanted to see my kills. They always, they never believed when I said, oh, I just killed an ISIS fighter. And then they wanted, they said like, oh, okay, show me. Hmm. And I said, okay, see here, you can see the heat signature. Looks like a human. That's a dead ISIS fighter. And later my kills got confirmed always. So yeah, um, over this time, over this period, I have like, I had around 20, uh, not 20, 12 confirmed kills. 12 confirmed and, kills. Yes, and that's more than I have heard of any other volunteer. Hmm. Like, for example, and this is Jack, in the first, like, this is in like the first, like, how long? This is the first two months. Okay. I would say the first, the first one and a half months, the first six weeks, maybe. And you're still operating with the first, yeah, okay, so you're still operating with the first, like, four-man team, or now you're just kind of like, yes, like, exactly. Uh, no, no, still first team, not two to three sniper team. That was not established at that point. And you're embedded with Brusque through this whole thing, or? Exactly. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, and we trust each other. And he, he, at one point, he just says, okay, um, just tell me. When something, when something comes up, just tell me. Mm-hmm. Don't rely on my, on my assistance. Just tell me. Or just fire. When you see something and you think it's ISIS, just go for it. So he finally started to trust you enough where he's like, this guy's not going to start shooting yes. our own. Like Exactly. Yes. Because I've heard that was a problem, too, is that people would get. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. So he, th- he, he finally realizes, okay, there's a foreigner. He's solid. He's real. He doesn't do this for whatever purpose. Mm-hmm. And he, has, he actually has confirmed kills. And so everybody, whenever I come back from a night of, of operation, everybody is like, oh, Robin, what's up? Do you kill enemies tonight? <laughs> and yeah, it's, 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 quite, it's quite amazing. It's quite an amazing feeling. Um, and yeah, people start people started to get jealous um, oh, at this point, I think. And there's like in what way? some people, well, I had kills and they didn't, and I didn't do anything for my fame. A lot of people knew my name and they were starting to cheer when I come, when I come back from the front line, which was pretty odd. It was an odd feeling mm-hmm. for me. Um, and at the same time, it was cool. Yeah. So obviously people got, people got jealous in my old team and there's people not talking to me anymore right now, uh, especially because of that. And why would you say, what would they say is the reason they don't talk to you? I have no idea. Maybe, maybe they, they would say like, okay, one of the guys said, ah, oh, you become so, what, what word did he use? So arrogant. Mm. I don't become arrogant. I just, I'm just confident now in my skills. I'm just confident now that I can actually do stuff. And, um, I got more assertive over time mm-hmm. uh, because I got more secure in what I do. So I started to make calls. Yeah. Like that moment where you saw the guys with the machine gun and you did not assert yourself and then bad things happened. Yes. Yes. And ne- exactly. so, that, so then you start to see this difference Yeah. where when you have a feeling and you see something, you've learned to trust your own eyes to the point where you say, hey, I saw this. This is happening stop the operation i see yeah. this yeah let's wait let's wait in this building is somebody go there clear the building first before advancing through the streets mm-hmm. and yeah that was a very valuable lesson for me and i will never forget this um a couple of days after the last operation no no no, no a couple, i think two weeks before the last operation let's let's start there two weeks before the last operation i heard that there was a spanish guy killed Mm. and everybody looked at me like 
buddy, I think your best friend just died. Argesh. Oh, wow. Because we became, because we became really good friends in the safe house and we had plans to establish the sniper team. So everybody said, okay, Argesh is dead. Argesh got killed. And I didn't have any opportunity to let feelings out or anything because we're still at war. So I'm like, fuck, Argesh is dead. Okay. So, all right, good. What, what, whatever now. And when was the last time you had seen him? Uh, the last time I'd seen him was at the academy before we got, no, at Inisa, because, uh, at the point where you get uh, basically your assignments. This was the last time I had seen him. Wow. So it's been like a couple, like a month or so since you've seen him. I ha it had been two months since I had seen him. Oh, two months since you'd seen Argash. Yeah, exactly. And so I thought he might have been killed in action. Hmm. And um, I didn't, I tried not to think about it. But one day we came back from the front line and the commander said that there's somebody to see me. So I walked into the I walked into the main building, and there was our guest standing, and I was like, my eyes got wet, and I started to cry like a baby. Oh man! And started to hug and started to hug him, and everybody was looking weird at me, and I didn't give a shit at this point. I was just, I was just happy that he's alive, mm -hmm. and I was like in his arms crying and, and saying like, dude, I thought you're dead, and. He was like, he was like, stop embarrassing me. He's like, he's like this hard <laughs> motherfucker, you know, he, he, he cares a lot. He cares a lot. And I know that he cares a lot about me. He cared a lot about Jack and, um, yeah. And he'd been there longer or as long in the beginning. He'd been there since 2015 or even 2014, I think from the conversations I've had yeah. with him. Yeah, exactly. It, it was his third tour. Yeah. And yeah. So, you know, you know him, you know, he's a hard motherfucker. He, yeah, he he tries he tries to maintain this facade of not giving a shit, even though he does. Uh, it's just it's it's just yeah. Really, I've been talking to him a bit, mostly yeah. in Spanish though, and so like all the stories. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you got to work yeah. on this story in English so we can bring it into the into yeah. this. And uh, seriously, yeah, we need to invite him to maybe the next podcast. Yeah, he said he was up for it. He will. Oh, nice. Great. Because he will tell you the story again, like when Robin cried like a baby <laughs> and he will, he will, you, you will see the dynamic that we have when we're talking. We could be yeah. a comedian duo. He and me, <laughs> him and me, we could be a comedian duo and um, people will love the interaction between Argish and me. And I think we should invite him a couple of more times because people will love this shit. Seriously, <laughs> this is going to make people laugh like crazy. So there's Argesh. And looking at me now, I stopped crying. I got myself back together. And he's like, well, you need to come with me now. And I'm like, why? And he's like, because now we're going to have our sniper team. Mm. And I'm like, well, damn, nice. And what did, what, what was the impetus for that? That, you know, that Argesh was like, we're going to, we're going to put this like four man team together. So like, so Argesh says, dude, you're coming with me. We're doing what? Like, and then did he explain where the... Ah, oh, we, we're going to have our sniper team. He said, like, yeah. I'm together with Jack now. I'm, I'm together with Jack Holmes. We need another guy. You're the guy. Mm -hmm. Let's go. And he looked at the commander and said, I'm going to take him. And the commander looks at him like, oh, fuck, this guy has authority. Fuck, okay. <laughs> he, thought is, he thought Argesh is a commander and said, like, okay, yes, no problem. Okay. Uh, and, and off we went. And I, I, went to, I went back to the room where my team was and I told the guys, guys, you know that I really like you and 
I had this plan with Argesh to make the make our sniper team, so I have to leave. Mm-hmm. And I think this was also is also kind of the reason why one of the guys doesn't talk to me anymore. Because yeah, I left it basically. I was the team leader, and I left. You felt left behind. I think so. Yeah, because I think at this point they were not allowed to do much shit anymore. I don't know. I'm not mm. sure. I don't know what happened actually. I didn't see them a lot anymore. They felt ditched. Um, I think so. I yeah. think they felt ditched, and I cannot. I mean, I cannot blame them. But at the same time, the guy who doesn't talk to me anymore is the guy with the military experience who could just have taken over the team leader. Yeah. So. The team leader position so i don't know yeah and yeah man that's interesting so now i'm in on the way now i'm on the way to another front line with argash <laughs> i'm in this car and um, i have all my stuff together crazy and we're on the way to to the two 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 three sniper team yeah so this is the beginning of the essentially the final iteration of yes the two two three this is where we actually do, do, do the crazy shit. Because the 223 originally was like a unit that was that was put together, you know, what, six months earlier or something like that, or a year earlier? I think a year earlier. And they were an assault team. Yeah. And then they did some, they did a bunch of operations. And then finally it got yeah. kind of too sticky. There were a lot of wounded in one of the operations and it sort of uh, came apart is my understanding. Yes, exactly. And, our guest who was kind of like a big key piece of that said, let's yes. pull this back together with Jack, who was a piece of it for a bit. Um, exactly. We didn't think yeah. about the name. Well, actually, we didn't think about we, th- we didn't think about it this way. We, ch- we thought we we're going to make our sniper team. Mm-hmm. And the name for the team just came like two weeks later. Mm-hmm. We just decided, hey, let's have a name for our sniper team. And then Argesh came up with the name like, let's name it just two to three sniper team. Yeah. And we were all good with that. So this is the sniper team version of... Of the 223. Yeah, exactly. And what's what's the origin of the name 223? The origin is that the first volunteer, the first international volunteer was killed on uh, February 23 mm. in 2014. That is the origin. And it's funny because 223 is also a caliber. Mm-hmm. It's basically 5.56 five, millimeters. Uh, it's called 223 and so it's kind of kind of a nice coincidence to have that right yeah yeah wow so now i'm on the way to the new front line and argus is telling me in the car well jack is out there right now probably alone doing some stupid shit like he always does <laughs> and so, na- <laughs> so so we arrive at this new compound at this new base um, sleeping on the rooftop and Jack's not there and Argus says, oh my god, Jack is out there alone by himself. Whoa. Damn it. Yes. And he would do that kind of stuff a lot? Yep. Wow. Well, let's talk about, well, I think we should talk about uh, Jack, like like the, the beginning days of you and Jack and Argus on the next the one. The next time? Yeah. Yes, definitely. That's completely good. But to wrap this one up, I just wanted to reflect for a second on, you know, after just to kind of tie a bow around the idea of this episode, which is the first time that you killed somebody and confirmed killed somebody. Yeah. 
if you remember any thoughts from then, obviously you're getting a lot of positive reinforcement from the people around you. Like, hey, it was pretty clear. Yeah. Like this this guy just killed, you know, two or five people um, over a couple of days. And then you were able to get a lot of rounds off uh, at him. And then yep. they later confirmed that the sniper like was dead. This is your first kill. And that's my first kill. And then I think what's interesting is, you know, as you progress and think about this stuff, what kind of reflection were you doing about that? Like, did you ever feel, I know it's weird to have, to think about, you know, going into sort of an empathy mindset for the people that you're fighting against. Did that ever happen? I mean, what, what never, no, was there reflection or you're just like, fuck these guys, they're killing my guys. That's it. There was a thought that I had once where I thought like, well, but they're also kids. Um, but to be honest, I never saw kids. Hmm. I never saw kids fighting against me, at least. Mm. And so this is the only thing that I thought about. What if I have to shoot? A, what if I have to shoot a kid? Mm -hmm. That crossed my mind. But for the rest of the part, for the rest of the thing, um, for the rest of the time, I didn't think about. Yeah, I killed somebody. I didn't think about that. For me, it was like it was a good thing. Because this was what I was... I didn't come to kill people, but I, I came to stop ISIS. And that was part of it. So for me, getting so much positive reinforcement made me not think about it too much. And actually gave me a good feeling about it. Because obviously it's it's very important what you have around you. Because when, when people say, oh, you killed somebody, wow, okay, crazy. Then obviously, yeah, okay, you try, you start to think about it in another way. Yeah, but everybody was always cheering me up for that. So I never had bad thoughts about it. I don't dream about it. I don't have bad thoughts nowadays. Um, I'm still proud and to have made a difference over there. And yeah, I mean, do you have a philosophy? Were you raised with a re with a specific religion, or was there anything? No. Like what? What would you? How would you define yourself? in terms of belief or philosophy? At this point, I was just completely in the mindset of a warrior. Mm. And this was my identity at that moment, right? So obviously also now I, I have another part of me who believes more in, in, in like actually changing things by changing the mind and changing mindset and changing opinions and changing leaderships. But at that point, at that moment, I was not in that headspace. I was completely the soldier, the warrior, and didn't think about this at all. Mm -hmm. So even now reflecting it back, um, I think thinking about those things too much um, would just lead to, could just lead to PTSD or, mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, I think I have a pretty healthy mindset of like, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not good to kill those people because killing people is not very, it's not very good. But at the same time, it was necessary to be done because they didn't give us much choice. Yeah. So it becomes a, a functionality sort of problem. It's like a maintenance issue where like these yes. people yes. are killing our people. And so the equation becomes pretty simple. Well, either they, either I kill them or they kill me. Yeah, and I prefer not to die. So, yeah. and I prefer to protect my people. So, obviously, I have to kill them. It's a pretty straightforward thinking, and it's pretty, 
pretty dull for mm-hmm. some people maybe, but it's necessary at that point. I think keeping the equation simple sort yes. of helps keep out the doubt. Exactly. Because when you doubt, you're dead. When you hesitate, you're dead. Yeah. Did you ever have any doubt about feeling like, is this my fight kind of thing? No, no, never. For some reason, I never had that. Other guys I know of, they had it. I didn't. For me, it was pretty clear from the moment I I left Germany that this is my fight. Yeah. And so what is it that that helped, that convinced you this is your fight? It's more like, you know, a lot of terror attacks in Europe. People talking all the time like, oh, ice is so bad. Oh, we must do something. But nobody's doing something. So mm-hmm. now I'm the one doing something. And that gave me a lot of a lot of certainty. Yeah. This belief that everybody's talking about it and that there is somebody who needs to do something. But usually when you say like, oh, somebody needs to do something, nobody's doing anything. So now I'm the one doing something. That's interesting. So basically like for you were like fed up with everybody pointing at the problem and everybody and nobody doing anything. Yeah, exactly. What are you crunching on today? Carrots. Say again? Are you crunching Damn on carrots? <laughs> you know, I was going, I was, I was it's putting my head away anyway. from the, no, it's not watermelon. Damn it. You can hear that. Fuck. <laughs> I was, I was trying to, to move away from the microphone to, because I didn't have breakfast to eat some Doritos. But, okay. <laughs> oh, it's Doritos. Yeah. Damn it. Funny. I cannot eat during the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Okay. All right, man. Dude. Well, I mean, was there, do you have any final thoughts about that? I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing to be somebody. And I think this is, it's so common. Like we're all trying to just work through our own lives and our own psychologies and yes to see something bad on the internet which most of us have seen and to see it on the news ad nauseum and to see um all this stuff going on and then to make the decision like okay i feel like my impact can be greatest felt by flying to a foreign country where i don't speak the language to use my military training (laughs) to try and fight guys whose ideology i don't really understand but it is clear that they are cutting people's heads off and want to revert the world back to a uh, first millennium kind of uh, rule of law that is biblical and apocalyptic in nature yep and you're there it's like a different you know it's these fighting in a foreign war on your own based on your own decision making like hey here's i can fit into the into a part of the solution like this it's and to yeah. go that far to do it and to find yourself all the way there and then get praised for it. That's a pretty amazing journey. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. I think so too. It was one of the greatest things I've ever done. And mm-hmm. I'm still proud that I did it. And I never regretted it, even though the situation I'm in right now, never regretted that. And did you have any thoughts at the time? Like, Hey, at the end of this, I want to, this will allow me to feel this way. I mean, you feel like you made a difference. Well, it's kind of twofold because at one point at at the one side, yes, I made a difference, but on the other side, without me, the war would have still gone the same way. Mm -hmm. So 
maybe a couple of days more, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. That's the point. I'm just I'm just a small piece in the whole puzzle and it's a huge puzzle. Here's what's interesting to me. Books and experiences and life are all these people are always driving into uh, a reflection on action from the past to try and pull greater meaning and to try and turn things into bigger treatises on psychology and the meaning of life and all these things. And in the end, you know, we started this conversation today talking about the meaning of, and you mentioned even just making your bed is the first success of the day. And yeah, what I've found is that when I'm working on really big projects, I like to fix little things. If there is a nail sticking out of the fence in my yard, I will go outside with a hammer and hammer that nail in. And it gives me <laughs> a small piece of satisfaction for that day that is quite rewarding that I'm... It's an accomplishment. Exactly. Yes. And so in that kind of construct, how does yes. your involvement and the reflection on it play into your life? Does it, Do you feel like you... I know what you mean, though. ...have attained greater meaning and like all these... Because now you're, you're paying for it with these consequences, too, which is being countryless and... Uh, yeah. You know, you were in a dire strait just a month ago or six weeks ago, and now your life, you yeah. know, is at the beginning of a, a brand new turnaround. And there's, it's still precarious. Like, there's still a first world nation that wants to put you in prison. I feel the whole war and the whole consequences afterwards made me hell of a lot stronger and changed me in ways that. I cannot even verbalize because before my life was kind of not normal, but because I was never normal, but it had like, it had like a line, right? And now I lost a lot of anxiety that I had before. Hmm. I lost a lot of the, of the thought like, oh, what, what if I, I live a life without meaning, blah, blah, blah. I lost all that because I know my life has meaning. It, it already had meaning. Maybe not so much right now. I'm working on that. But I know now how it feels like when your life has a good meaning. Hmm. And I want more of that in different ways. And I also know that I can do almost anything because I survived the war. Um, I was under fire so many times and I still could continue doing my job. So what in hell could happen that would make me give up on something mm. like what what could what, what what could ever happen that would make me give up or that i couldn't do there's almost nothing yeah and that's the key point i think that's the key point whenever i think about the war um, and it's called post-traumatic growth whenever you grow from a trauma because war is trauma i mean there's no no doubt about that right and post-traumatic growth is is a big thing now in science hmm I've not heard of that. That's the first time I've heard of post-traumatic growth. Yeah, it's basically when you turn around a traumatic experience in the past for the learning lessons and for the good things that came out of it, then it's post-traumatic growth. It becomes, you grow out of it. Hmm. And, and that's basically what happened. Man, I feel like that needs to be talked about more because 
right now all you hear about is post-traumatic sure. stress and the damage that all these things do and ptsd yeah everyone just talks about the damage and the damage and the damage but i know i know i have clients who come to me there's a real case for growth after difficulty yes yeah that's true and i have a lot of not a lot of clients but i have clients who were in a war or who experienced traumatic experiences in their life before mm -hmm. and they they're suffering from ptsd and we work to a point where they can realize that there is something in this experience where they can grow out of mm -hmm. they can grow from right so they can grow as a person from realizing that they survived this shit and usually there's a lot of learning experiences in those experiences right so when somebody comes then to me for coaching or for therapy then the first thing one of the first things i ask is okay what's the good thing about it and then they look at me with with complete wide eyes like what the fuck are you talking about i'm here because i feel shit about it mm -hmm. and so over the next two uh, two hours maybe we come to a point where they realize that they can be grateful for whatever happened mm -hmm. and i'm grateful for all the things that happened the good things and the bad things in the war and i'm not so grateful for for my situation right now with the german government but that's that's <laughs> i will come to that point i guess at one stage at one stage in my life i will come to the point where i can say okay that was also a good thing i learned something out of it and maybe i wouldn't have i would have never pushed so hard with the business that i have now mm -hmm. maybe i would never push so hard if i would if i would still be in germany now um, in my comfy life um, no government looking for me maybe i wouldn't push so hard maybe clients wouldn't trust me so much yeah there's a there's a philosophical school of thought that i mean it exists in a lot of different philosophies that talks about how people function more efficiently and better when they have a clear enemy and a clear hurdle to get over yes the difficulty yes. of life is in in the first world right now that i've seen in myself and friends and people that are you know externally from the outside successful and yet yeah. they struggle with a feeling of fulfillment and satisfaction partly because the yes. options seem so limitless and i think that part of this has to do with uh modern culture's obsession with billionaires and being ultra rich and being able to supposedly be above the law and all this stuff oh yeah and it's it's that like we see the mountaintop and it makes our everyday seem less fulfilling because we don't yeah. have the same freedoms and yet we're not taking advantage of all of the psychological and personal freedoms that we do have. I mean, it's hard. It's yes, hard to live right. in that. I'm not sure if I'm fully conveying what I, what I, the feeling that I'm thinking, but is that kind of what you're alluding to as well? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And there is people, there's clients coming to me with exactly that. They feel like my life has no meaning. I, I don't know. I have limitless options, but I don't know what to do because nothing I do actually fulfills me. Mm -hmm. So now, there's the question of what do we have to do? What do we have to change in your mindset or maybe even in your world, in your work, in your life that will give you a sense of fulfillment? Mm -hmm. Because usually leadership has this kind of problem that they feel overwhelmed, they feel burned out, they feel stressed, feel loads of anxiety. And I mean, I'm talking about founders of big companies, CEOs, executives in general, and giving those people a sense of purpose and teaching them skills that 
allow them to feel good about themselves and good about the world again mm-hmm. and feeling a sense of purpose in their work by giving back something that they have learned down the line basically to their employees to the people they're working with that is going to change the world over time i think yeah and that's 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 the reason why i chose to work usually with leadership in my in my job now in my coaching job uh, because i think this is going to make a huge this can make a huge impact on on the future on the world because when the, when the leaders are better then the world becomes better naturally mhm so was your whole war when you went into this like into Syria and this whole thing were you thinking like oh cool this is really going to inform my work as a life coach No not at all <laughs> not at all I was I was trying to get away from 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 that before because I did not feel a sense of purpose in my work anymore mm. and now I know why and why? I can do something against it why well because I was not I was not appreciative enough I just didn't appreciate what I actually do. I was teaching I was teaching psychologists, I was teaching therapists, coaches twice my age in techniques that they don't understand that I understand pretty good. Mm-hmm. Because I am willing to put the energy and the effort in and the time to to understand pretty complex concepts um and make it make it look easier. Make a technique out of it, make it easy for for people to learn. Yeah. Right? I mean the field the field of coaching the field of especially hypnotherapy because most I mean let's face it most most of coaching comes out of hypnotherapy because hypnotherapy works there's a lot of studies we have that prove that hypnotherapy works amazingly well nowadays and it's not it's not voodoo shit <laughs> and still it's a very complex topic I mean are you, when you say hypnotherapy are you talking about like dangling a watch you know and uh, or no, or is no. this more like Exactly like that's that's, like, that's that's more movie stuff yeah <laughs> that's or, more movie stuff but are you talking about like actual like <clears throat> sort of trance state hypnotherapy t- or is it more like uh yes. inserting stuff into your own kind of self-talk it's more okay so hypnotherapy is more like a trance state is not even it's not even it's necessary but it's not like people think it is you don't lose control in a trance state you don't I, as a hypnotherapist i don't have control over you mm-hmm. if i if if that would be true i wouldn't sit here right now i would sit in the bahamas because i would make somebody rob a bank for me <laughs> and <laughs> and i would be king of the world if i could do that if i could make everybody do whatever i want dude i would be the king of the world no i would probably i would be in the bahamas and chill but Yeah, I'm still here in Brazil and I would just call Angela Merkel and would would persuade her to to say like, "Ah, let's drop the charges on this guy. He's such a nice guy." <laughs> and yeah. If that would work like that, it would be great, but it doesn't. Yeah. Hypnotherapy is not giving something from the outside to somebody on the inside. No. It is actually a process where I can find the resources that somebody has inside of themselves to solve their own problem. Mhm. And it's made in very elegant ways, and those elegant ways are also very complex at times. So yeah, cool. Yeah, that's what I do. Basically, I give people good experiences so they can so they can connect those good experiences with their problems that they are having, and the problems are going to resolve. Yeah, naturally, that's that's what your unconscious mind is doing. You just need to find the right resource, and your unconscious mind is going to resolve 
the problem by itself. If you know how to do it from the I mean, if, 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 I, if you know how to guide someone through that process. Cool. I think that's a good place to yeah. call it. Definitely. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us through another episode of Good Treason. Check us out on goodtreason.com, Facebook page, Reddit, all that good stuff. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Good Treason. This is Scott Meyer for Springline Media.